Well, I hope you've all mailed your Christmas cards by now, right? Isn't that a terrible way to begin a sermon? Right away, I've made you feel guilty because either you haven't done that or you have no intention of doing that. I've received a lot of cards over the years with stunning family photos, making folks look like nothing that they appear in life to be. I've received cards with the Bethlehem star on them, beautiful, dainty angels flying around mangers while they blow trumpets, which I'm not sure why you would blow a trumpet around a manger and a sleeping baby, but that seems to be part of the deal. I've seen cards with Mary and Joseph traveling on their way to Bethlehem on a donkey, and Mary looks like she is simply delighted by the 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem on a donkey, nine months pregnant. She even seems to be smiling on some of those cards. Now, I have never given birth myself, but I'm pretty confident that if you are great with child, then riding that distance on a donkey is not something to be too pleased about, right? Anyone here ever ridden a donkey in real life? Okay, a few of us. I've ridden a donkey. I was not pregnant at the time. And it was not a pleasant experience, I'm here to tell you. But these are the sorts of Christmas cards we send and receive, right? Sort of clean up the Christmas story. Ever received a card with John the Baptist on the front? A Christmas card, can you imagine it? Matted hair, teeth missing, a bowl of locusts and honey as he crunches dead insects, worn out sandals, appendages stained black from the wilderness. What says Christmas better than that, you know? I haven't received one like that. He's not exactly Christmas card material. John the Baptist is a strange, brazen, bizarre prophet who lived and preached in the wilderness. Here we are, getting ready for the happy glow of Christmas morning. With decorations and tinsel, if we still use that. Piles of delicious food, concerts, candlelight. But before we can get there, the church insists on forcing us to think about a crazy guy whose sermons were not exactly the most downloaded podcast in the ancient Near Eastern world. Remember what he said? You brood of vipers, repent or you're all going to hell. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> we have to listen to it. And by forcing us to listen to the Baptist, the church isn't just pulling a strange rabbit out of her hat. It's following the pattern of the Gospel account. Have you ever noticed how Luke begins his story of the Savior of the world? It's as if we aren't really ready to receive Jesus unless we encounter John the Baptist first. Notice the structure and the flow of the first chapter. We begin with Zechariah, whose song was just read for us a moment ago, John's father. And the story of how the angel told him of the impending birth of his son. It's quite a story of unbelief and naming that child in this just extraordinary narrative there. But before he 
concludes the Zechariah story, Luke moves to the angel's visit to Mary and the announcement concerning the birth of Jesus. So, John's birth foretold, and then immediately, Jesus' birth foretold. Then Luke takes us back to John by means of a scene between Mary and Elizabeth. And then Luke gets very specific. When Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb, John, John the Baptist, leaps. These two babies, Luke is saying, are bound together. They are interwoven. They are united in blood, cousins, and in mission. After that, Luke has Mary sing her Magnificat, which we'll hear about next week. And then Luke returns us to the story of the Baptist before he goes into detail in the next chapter about Jesus. And we might think he's sufficiently made his point, but after the birth narrative of Jesus in chapter 2, he takes us right back to John in chapter 3. And this time, he lets us hear John's sermons. John, Jesus, John, Jesus, John. Right at the start. Seems that we're not quite ready to hear Jesus unless we go through John first. Why tell us the story this way, especially with such a strange man like John the Baptist? Not Christmas material. And I don't mean just in the way he looks. John has tough words to say. If he were here, I bet he wouldn't speak the soothing tones of the children's nativity play. Or he would say to us, Christmas sure does bring out the best in you guys. No, that's not John. I doubt if the Baptist showed up today, he would say, hey, I don't really need to get you guys ready for the Messiah's arrival. You seem to be doing pretty well on your own. In fact, I'll just ask him to reconsider his plan and forget this whole messy incarnation business. Not likely. But when Zechariah penned a song about his yet-to-be-born son, he said that he, John, was the great prophet that would prepare the way for the Son of God. And he would do that among people who are living in darkness, who are living in the shadow of death. Now, that's the stark reality of our present condition, who we are, and the need for the Incarnation, and the need for Christmas. Living in the shadow of death. I read somewhere that Carl Sandburg begins one of his poems with, can we be honest for just five minutes, even though this is Chicago? <laughs> it's a question we might ask ourselves at Christmas. Can we be honest for just five minutes, even though this is Christmas? You see, the reason I say that is because with all the so-called Christmas cheer and goodwill and sentimentality, the Bible still wants us to face up to John before we get to the baby. Before we can truly know the gravitas of the Incarnation, 
we must have a realistic view of ourselves. And Christmas sentimentality threatens to make us feel too good about ourselves. To extract us from what is reality before God. And reinforce our self-righteousness. Which is what bars our way to Jesus. I've always been pretty comfortable with reasonable levels of risk, much to the chagrin of some people around me. This has certainly been reflected in my preaching over the years. Uh, one Christmas Eve, a number of years ago, I preached on, get this, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, Christmas Eve, mind you, and how the Son of Man, like the bronze serpent, is lifted up I mean, how about that for Christmas Eve? <laughs> but I promise you, it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I connected the serpent wonderfully to the message of Christmas. Everyone was amazed. Later on, I received an email from a faithful member of that church chastising me for not preaching Christmas Eve from Luke 2. And the reason he was upset was that he had brought his non-Christian family members who expected to hear the Christmas story, and they were terribly disappointed in what I had to say. And he told me, this is what I couldn't believe, he told me that they wouldn't take a chance next Christmas, so they'd be attending another church for that evening. Can you see how much this has hurt me? my face revealed. I just couldn't believe it. I did give them the Christmas story that night. I tried to get them to listen to John the Baptist. To sit under a realistic view of who we are and what good news really is. The Baptist is preparing us to meet the Son of God through repentance. And that's the best possible message for anyone living in darkness in the shadow of death. If you want the light, I'm going to prepare the way. I'm going to show you the highway, John says. And the highway to get to Jesus is a highway of repentance. Cast aside your self-righteousness, you brood of vipers, John says. And get on that highway. Repentance. If you're living in the shadow of death and darkness, spiritually speaking, and you don't know where that next step in life will take you, the prophet, the worst thing that the prophet could do would be to come to you and speak platitudes and share inspirational quotes with you. Especially sharing inspirational quotes, because I've made it abundantly clear to you, God hates inspirational quotes. Right? Yes. God's prophet doesn't come to us reassuring us that we're okay. He comes with 10,000 volts of shock to wake us up and to get us away from imminent disaster. One day, when one of our boys was very young, we were in the middle of a 
large European city in the middle of the festival. And we lost him for a moment. Can you imagine that feeling? Have you had it? Do you know what we did? I can tell you what we didn't do. We did not wander around and whisper his name and stroll about and casually ask people if they had seen a, a young boy that looked moderately American wandering around on his own. We did not do that. We started screaming and running around like crazy people. Crazy like John the Baptist, I would guess. If we had quietly just sauntered about hoping our son would reemerge on his own, then we very well could have lost him that day. But with our screaming and yelling and running around like nutcases, we gave him a gift. It was forceful. It was zealous. It was awkward. People looked at us like we had two heads. But in spite of all the stares and the uncomfortable sensations, we gave ourselves and our son a great gift. We gave him salvation. And can you imagine the joy when we found him? A sigh. All of your muscles just relaxed. That's who John the Baptist is. To get us on that way. That repentance. It's awkward. I don't know about you, I sort of like the rhythm of my life, especially around Christmas. We have our sacred traditions that give us a warm feeling about this season. Even Christians don't mind it too much these days when we talk about the holiday season instead of Advent or Christmas time. Yes, we want to see the manger, but we're relaxed about the overt religious expressions because it's more about all the stuff around the Christmas season. The Bible doesn't let us get away with that. I'm not saying that any of these holiday traditions are particularly bad in themselves. They aren't. But they are if they divert us from the strange and distasteful calls from John the Baptist to get us ready for the baby by repenting. Repentance. I don't know how to tell you about John the Baptist without using that word. The R word, repentance. Repent just doesn't roll off the tongue these days, does it? <clears throat> Not sure I've ever required my sons to repent of the evil that they have wrought upon me in the past. I don't recall suggesting to a church member who's come to me for advice that step one is repent. I probably should have. Without a doubt, I've suggested it in some roundabout way, maybe some sort of therapeutic way, but I don't recall ever using the word repent in that context. It's just not one that sounds like something good folks like ourselves should be using. In care groups or prayer groups, repent doesn't come up in casual conversation. And yet, it's the word chosen by both John and later by Jesus to announce the arrival of his kingdom. 
Zechariah's song says, And you, my child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of all of their sins. And he did, and he announced, repent. That's the highway that will get you to Jesus. And the knowledge of salvation is wrapped up in a strikingly honest and vulnerable view of ourselves and our deepest need. I hope you don't take offense. I hope you don't feel like I'm depriving us of the warmth of the season or that I'm just being cantankerous. I'm not trying to be. It really is good news because after John the Baptist finishes giving us the castor oil of repentance. Luke says this in chapter 3. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Repentance is very, very good news. Zechariah knew it. His song is all about the day his son will get Israel ready for Jesus with repentance. So if you want to come to Jesus, it will take nothing less than a willingness to turn back on anything that pulls us away from the life-giving, soul-restoring, heart-healing love of God in Jesus Christ. And what's available in our world to do that is almost endless and infinite, to pull us away from Christ. I want to tell you about a friend of mine from college. We were pretty good friends. We played sports together. We studied the Bible together. We even did a lengthy, sustained ministry together. I was in his wedding. I knew him well. After we graduated, he moved to another state and he became a youth pastor at a large church. And it was during that time period that something that had been inside him for a long time started manifesting itself outwardly. And my ministry buddy, my longtime friend, began assaulting girls in his youth group and abusing them. He kept it under wraps successfully for a long time. He left that church and he went to another state and you would think that maybe he would try to start fresh. He seems, it seems he picked up right where he left off, this time both inside the youth group and even outside of that youth group with others. All the while, his wife was having their babies clueless that this was happening. As it always does, sin caught up with him. And when it was revealed, when it all came out, I wasn't around him, but I told by mutual friends that there was a huge relief that everything he had been trying to hide and maintain had come out and he felt a sense of exhaustion and relief. He went to prison. 
for some time. I'm not sure how long. Somehow, while he was there, I'm told that God did something in him, in his heart. And those around him testified that he finally and sincerely repented of his sin. And as far as I know, that has continued to today. From all I can tell, from all I know, he's a different person. Of course, this doesn't mean that justice should be short-circuited or that he should ever be allowed back in church ministry. But none of that is my point. My point is that true joy only came from my friend when he experienced repentance from sin. When he got on that highway, the Baptist said, is the one that's straight and leads to the Christ. And when we spend our time trying to resuscitate our dead enemy that Jesus has already killed on the cross, sin, then we miss out on the fullness and the love of God. Repentance is a tough word, but not because it's bad. It leads to life. It leads to joy. It leads to the fullness of the love of God. There's nothing bigger or greater to sing about than God's gift to us in repentance that leads to life. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And John the Baptist is good news. Because God sent him to push us out of our wilderness of sin into the joyful arms of the loving God. Now, what will we do with this strange man, the Baptist, in that message? Thanks be to God.